service again. I haven't been here for a long time to be able to go through the whole service, so it's a pleasure to be here with you. And I also want to thank Josh and the ministry team and the shepherds for allowing me to preach uh, a couple of weeks um, on a subject that I'm passionate about. September is Recovery Month, National Recovery Month, and um, we're happy to celebrate the Recovery for Life ministry of this church has been going for 10 years. This is our 10-year anniversary. And a lot of people have been helped through that ministry. It's been a blessing for many of us that serve. And uh, we celebrate. So in order to celebrate, we want to invite you to come over and visit us. We've done this every year for a number of years. We invite you to come over the first Sunday of the month. But this year is a little bit different. We want to invite you to come over any and every Sunday during September that you'd like. Just to check it out, see what we do. Uh, if you're not plugged into an ABC class and you're looking for one, come over and visit us. Or if you just want kind of a change of pace or find out what we do, please come over and join us one Sunday in September. We'd be thrilled with that. So I want to give you a little bit of a map. I'm going to go quick today, so I want you to kind of know where we're going the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to talk about the recovery road. And there is a journey that we are all in. We are all in recovery from something. And so we're all on this road and kind of the, the, where the noise is at is in our own heads and in our own hearts as we struggle to improve and to grow. So we're all on this road. We're going to learn something about intrapersonal intelligence, not interpersonal between us, but intrapersonal intelligence. Then next week, we're going to have a lesson called Welcome Home, and we're going to be talking about the role of the church in the lives of people. In recovery, one of the things that you learn is you have to find new people, places, and things. You have to leave the old people, places, and things behind. That is so difficult. It's hard to make new friends. It's hard to plug into new places. So next week, we're going to see if the church could help. Today, our classroom is going to be the Wilderness Wonderings. You can turn in your Bibles or on your phone to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. And we're going to finish up today's lesson with a powerful true life story of Carly Brocklehurst. And to get started in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is a powerful passage if you kind of let it soak in. So we're going to go through it verse by verse, and we're going to see what we can learn because that's Paul's intention. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud as they passed through the sea, and that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and that they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, we're not going to go into all the theology because it could really get mind-boggling what he's talking about here. How was Christ with them all along? But that's all we have to understand out of this passage is Christ was with them, just like he is with us. And so he was on the journey with them. He's on the journey with you. Nevertheless, but God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, that should be pretty significant to us. Christ was with them. They were baptized into Christ. They had every advantage, and yet God was not pleased with them. Why? So, this is the valuable verse for us. He says, I want you to learn from these things. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts 
on evil things as they did. What things? Let's look at four. The first one is, he says, don't, do not be idolaters. So in Exodus chapter 32, he talks about the golden calf and the, the, the impatience that the people of Israel developed. When Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, he didn't get back quick enough. And that impatient, that frustration, is what led them to solve the problem themselves. So anything that we put before God that we don't wait on God and instead we try to solve the problems ourselves is idolatry. So also he says you should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Pretty significant to God, apparently, that they not commit sexual idolatry. And they joined themselves with Moabite or foreign women's, uh, women when they were in Shittim. And so that is a lesson that they want us to learn. So the other thing it says is we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So there was a number of them that were killed by snakes until Moses lifted up the snake on the staff and they looked at it and they were saved. So they tested Christ as they spoke out against the leadership of Moses and the leadership of God. When they rebuked Moses for bringing them, delivering them out of slavery into the wilderness, it's said here to be testing Christ and they were destroyed. Now, here's the one that I kind of want to develop a little bit because I think this is the most important one. It says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. At least 14 times, probably more than that, the Israelites grumbled. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. It's too hot. It's too cold. All of these problems, and it's not happening fast enough. We've been camped here forever. We've been walking forever. And so they grumbled a number of times about a number of different things. And it says that the leadership, they were grumbling against the leadership. They pointed to Moses. They pointed to God. Have you brought us out here in the desert to die? Were there not leeks and onions in Egypt that we could have eaten? And that grumbling against leadership caused many of their death. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, they didn't die from starvation, did they? They didn't die from thirst, did they? It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, even their sandals and their clothes didn't wear out. They died from the discipline of God because of their rebelliousness, because all of the waiting for the water or the waiting for the food was a way of seeing if they would depend on God or begin to try to solve their problems themselves, or worse, just sit there and complain about it. So here's the deal. The recovery road is when you murmur, grumble or complain, you're living in denial. That's the word that I want us to learn today. We're all familiar with the word, but we may not know really what it means. And when we, I want you to kind of connect these two things. When you grumble, murmur, or complain, you're living in denial. Let me tell you why. Oh, by the way, 
He says, these things happened again. He says this. He said it in verse 6. He says it in 11. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warning on us, warnings for us. Um, and then the next verse says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You too could be in denial. And so if you think you got it together, be careful. That's what the verse is saying. So here's the lesson. Here's the point. Intrapersonal means within the self. So intrapersonal intelligence is another term for self-awareness or introspection. And people who have high intrapersonal intelligence are aware of their emotions, their motivations, their beliefs, and their goals. They are in touch with themselves. So it would stand to reason that people that have a low intrapersonal intelligence are not in touch or not really comprehending their own emotions, their own motivations, their own beliefs, and their own goals. So when you're in denial, listen to this, and this is where it gets important. When you're in denial, you shift responsibility, we shift responsibility from our own emotions, motivations, beliefs, and goals to someone else. In other words, you can reach a point when you're in denial where you say, I'm not responsible for my own emotions, motivations, goals. Someone else is. And since someone else, it's their fault that I'm this way, my response is to complain. Doesn't that make sense? So here's the problem. Verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except that, except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So he won't do it for you. Hmm, that's kind of important. He won't do it for you but he will provide the tools and the way for him to do it with you. So kind of let that soak in a second. He promised, he said, our lives are a testimony to the truth that he won't do it for you. He won't rob you of the opportunity to learn and grow through your experiences, as difficult as they may be. But he did promise us, right, that he would be with us and that he would walk with us and that he would help us. Remember back to the desert? They had food when they needed it. They had water when they needed it. Their clothes didn't wear out. God provided for them. So the problem was their emotions, their frustrations, their fears, the things that kind of took them over. That's why they died in the wilderness for 40 years. So the bigger problem with denial is this. It's not just that you blame someone else for your crummy feelings or complain about it. As big as that problem is, that's not the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that you look for solutions to your problems outside yourself to be done for you, and God doesn't work that way. Does that sound like a problem to you? If you're looking for it to work that way and it doesn't work that way, hey, wake up and realize that you're in denial. 
And so denial is dangerous because it causes you to look for the government to do it for you, your employer to fix it for you, your wife or your kids to fix your family problems for you instead of owning them, instead of manning up or womaning up and saying, hey, I have to learn to deal with this because these are my issues. This is my growth process. And with God's help, God promised me that he wouldn't allow me to get tempted beyond my ability to cope, to deal with it, but he would often put me in positions where I have to depend on him to make it. The government's not going to do it for me. My employer's not going to do it for me. My family's, my friends, nobody's going to do it for me, but there's a whole church full of people that are willing to do it with me if I will allow them to do so. So the powerful verse, I love this verse, and probably most of you do as well. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and it should make a little bit more sense now. It says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't look for solutions outside. Now, I want to make myself clear. I'm not opposed to activism. I'm not opposed to volunteering. I'm not opposed to trying to make a difference in the world at work, in your government. You need to vote. You need to work. You need to do all these things to try to make the world a better place to live. But that's what you're doing. You're helping to make the world a better place to live. You're owning your own responsibility in the part of it. So it says that in order to do that well, in order to be a good citizen, in order to be a good employee, in order to be a good father or husband or wife or mother, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's just that simple. I mean, I wish I could sugarcoat it or change it, but it's just that simple. If your mind isn't renewed, you're going to be conformed to the world. There's no middle ground. So if you let God renew your mind, then you will be able to test and approve or, or know and take advantage of what is good and pleasing and perfect will is for your life. These questions about who am I and why am I here and what am I supposed to do will kind of fall into place and they'll start to make sense. And by the way, there'll be a lot less complaining too. Carly's story. Carly Brocklehurst is a video that we watch in Recovery for Life. I don't know how many times we've watched it, a number of times. And as a matter of fact, I think we're going to watch it today. But Carly's story is fascinating. She is a little girl that is born into a family with a mother and a father that are meth addicts and the intravenous users. And her dad leaves pretty quickly when she's a baby. She gets a stepfather, and her mother is abusive. She even has marks on her body where her mother puts cigarettes out on her. They change places to live often. She remembers times sleeping in the back of the car, even a few times sleeping under the tire swing at school where she attends. So her life is pretty crummy when she is young. And her mother, this abusive personality, is something that she's only protected by her stepfather, when he comes in the picture, he's a meth addict also, but he is just a better person. And he's the one that protects her. He's the one that takes care of her until, as she gets older and gets to be a teenager, he dies. And when he dies, she feels like that she's been robbed of this protector 
the only family, the only person that she knows that even cares a little bit about her because her mother doesn't. And so when she comes home from the hospital after her stepfather dies, one of the last things she remembers about her mother is her mother shooting up and ODing and dying there on the spot. She's put into the system, into foster care, and she bounces around from home to home. And in her words, she, she says, I feel like I could never catch a break. And there was all kinds of problems in these foster care homes that she went through. And when she reached 17, she emancipated herself. She got out of the system and got out on her own. And she thought, finally, I can run my own life. And she did so by dating a whole bunch of different guys and going out and partying every night and drinking and using drugs herself and all of these things that she hated growing up. She was right in the midst of all of this and all that time feeling alone. She did have a boyfriend that she lived with, not a great guy, but somebody that she kind of was there with. And she was a server at Applebee's. And one day she was serving at Applebee's and there was a group of ladies that were sitting in her section. And some of you ladies here, this will kind of sound familiar, they were planning a ladies' retreat. I think it was a youth retreat actually, but they were planning this retreat and as she was waiting on them, they noticed a little bit of interest in her, so they started sharing with her some of the things, and they invited her to a small group. And again, in her words, she says, I didn't even know what a small group was, but it was better than any other options I had for that night. So she went to the small group. And she connected. She liked that. She liked the feeling of having people that they kind of cared about her, and, and they were kind of normal, and they were friendly and loving and kind something that she'd never had in her life. And like she says in her words, she says, I wasn't ready to jump on the Jesus train yet, but I knew there was something there that I liked. And those ladies, that small group, made such a significant difference in her life. Oh, by the way, there was a surprise ending to this video that I'm not going to tell you about. You can come over to RFL and you can see it today in Randy or we'll post it online and you can watch it yourself but there is a shock ending that caused her to know that she needed to become a christian she needed christ in her life she needed god in her life because he was the only one that was able to make her feel loved make her feel accepted like she belonged like she was someone important finally and jesus changed her life he did it through a group of Christians like you. Now, the, the interesting thing about Carly's story is if anybody ever had a reason to feel like a victim, she did. Because she was. And she carried that mentality, that denial mentality, on into her adolescence and on into her young adulthood. Until one day... Jesus knocked at the door through this group of ladies. And he opened the door and she walked through. And when she walked through that door, she started to come out of denial. She started to recognize these feelings, these emotions, these motivations, these goals that she had. And they weren't really lined up. They weren't really very healthy. And God helped. God didn't do it for her. But God helped her to change. That's what God does. God helps people 
He doesn't do it for them. He helps people to change their lives if they want to, when they're ready. But it requires coming out of denial. It requires complaining about all the things that are being done to you. And it requires ownership. Responsibility. Scary stuff. But we're responsible to Christ to let him work in our lives the way that he wants to. And that, and only that, will change our lives eternally. Amen? So if you're not familiar with that relationship with Christ, if that kind of seems like a mystery to you, if that's something that you'd like to have, if maybe you're a complainer and you need to come out of denial, Jesus Christ accompanies us, moves with us through life, just like he did the Israelites. And he wants to help you. He won't do it for you, but he wants to help you. And so if you feel like that you need to respond, or if you feel like that there's prayers that we could offer up in behalf of you or your life, we would like to do that. The shepherds are going to be at the back. We'll be up here. So we invite you to respond in one way and let us know if there's any way we can help you as we stand and as we sing.